Hello, 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 and welcome to episode four of Geek Steep. I'm Marika. My name is Kelly, and if you're finding us for the first time, we have a really awesome intro episode. You can check that out, and it tells you a little bit what we're all about. So today, I need to jump right into it, because the fandom that we're exploring is large, it's world-renowned, it's everywhere. Um, It is Studio Ghibli. I'm not actually sure if we're saying Ghibli correct, to be honest. Uh, I've also heard it pronounced Ghibli, but I have always grown up saying Ghibli. Me too. Same with Marika, so that's just what we're going to say, and if we're wrong... Sorry? We apologize. Um, my Mandarin's pretty on point, but my Japanese is not good. So <laughs> I apologize to everyone. Um, but we chose one movie from Studio Ghibli that neither of us had seen. And that movie was Pom Poco. Pom Poco. Kelly, how did we choose this movie? Well, we knew we wanted to do something Ghibli. How could you not? But I didn't know what movies Marie could seen. Same with you. So what we did was literally open up Netflix because Netflix now has 21 out of the 22 movies from this studio. And I looked for the first one that I knew that I hadn't seen. And then I asked Marika if she had seen it. And if she said no, then that was the pick. And that happened to be Pompoco. It was just literally out of a hat. Out of a hat. And we picked a doozy. <laughs> no so, <way. laughs> but wait. Before we get into the nitty gritty of this, what are you drinking today, Kelly? I'm drinking a Chaupoir from Y2T. I had so many ideas for what I could potentially do for this movie uh, based on the little I knew about it. And this is one that I debated but didn't end up choosing, so I'm doing it today. And it is called Lumber Slut. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think it's fitting given... uh, Given what we now know about the movie, it's jarring in a way that we're going to talk about in terms of its name. But the reason that I had debated doing this, because all I knew about Pompoco was the little image that's shown in the box on Netflix uh, to advertise it. And that's like a line of these like raccoon looking things in a forest. So I kind of wanted something that would play into like that foresty element that I assumed that the story was going to take place in. And this tea has a very, like, woody, wet wood, wet earth, petrichor-type flavor, hence the lumber in Lumber Slut. Uh, So I'm drinking that today, brewed grandpa-style. Ooh, grandpa-style. Do you want to tell, for the people who don't know what grandpa-style is, I never called it that until I met you. So I know it's it's commonly accepted as a steeping style, but I never called it that. So I... This is debatable within the tea community as a whole, Mm -hmm. Uh, but the phrase grandpa style is kind of recognized as having originated from a blogger uh, called Marshall N, who, I don't know if he actually invented the the phrase, but I think he popularized it. Mm. But essentially it's a style where you just toss tea leaf in a cup and fill with water and drink directly out of the cup without straining. Typically, the leaf will sink to the bottom, Mm -hmm. and then you're able to drink without the need of a strainer, and you just top up with water as it gets too strong or as you drink it down. And it works only with certain types of tea. I generally grandpa oolong teas and puar teas, sometimes black, but a lot less frequently. Um, I came across that steeping method my first day when I was living in China. I got into a taxi, 
and the driver had a mason jar and his leaves were just at the bottom of his mason jar and he was drinking directly from it. And I'd never seen it in North America. And in China, it's really common to just put a bunch of leaves in your mug and just keep re-steeping, keep drinking it almost all day. Um, and it's a great way, A, to save money. You know, as you and I can attest, a lot of money can be spent on tea. Um, but also with every addition of hot water, you're, you're changing the flavor profile ever so slightly. And so it's a kind of nice way to discover a tea fully and completely unencumbered by a strainer. It's also in a way like a lazy man's gong fu. Right? Yeah. Like a very like slack, casual, low effort, but still delicious. <laughs> I drink a lot of grandpa when, uh, grandpa style tea, when I'm working from home uh, by my desk. I'll just mm. like pick a tea and that'll be the tea I drink for the morning because it's very convenient for me. That's really cool. I'm not doing grandpa style because I'm drinking a Japanese tea and typically they grandpa terribly. So... Are you drinking a Japanese tea? Am I drinking a Japanese tea? So I am drinking Camellia sinensis's Kukicha, which is grown in Nilgiri, India. So uh, the team at Camellia sinensis have uh, created what they call the Tea Studio, which is a uh, plantation in India where they transform local Indian tea using methods from Japan China, Taiwan. And so they're taking an Indian tea, which is usually processed in a certain way and applying more ancient oxidation and roasting techniques to create a new hybrid of tea. And I just picked it because I said, oh, we're doing Studio Ghibli today. Let me pick a Japanese tea. And this was literally on the top of your pile. And I was like, oh, Kukicha, I haven't drunk that in ages. And it is completely different from any Kukicha I have ever seen. First, it is gorgeous it is gorgeous it is just branches it's roasted branches and it's a light to dark brown almost no leaves um more um uh more oxidated than you'd usually see in a cookie cha um and it's it's it, it resembles closely a hoji cha right now but there isn't that astringency that you'll see when there are leaves added it's just really smooth really really smooth on the palate so slightly roasted Perfect for this theme today. Perfect for my mood, which is, what did we just watch? Is it Japanese? Is it Indian? I don't know. It's all over the place. <laughs> so, on the note of what we watched, let's quickly dig into some background on Pompoko, and then we'll get into the pressing thing I know we both want to talk about. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, but I but can't deny to. it. I need, you need to. to talk about it. But. Pompoko is a 1994 Japanese animated fantasy film from the widely known and beloved Studio Ghibli. It was directed by, and I'm so sorry if I say this incorrectly, Isawa Takahata. In the release year, it was the number one film in the Japanese domestic market, and it was chosen as the Japanese submission for the best foreign language category of the Academy Awards of that same year. In 2017, the New York Times ranked it the 7th greatest Studio Ghibli movie of all time, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it currently has an approval rating of 85% between 13 reviewers. The movie takes place in 1990s Japan, and the story follows a group of tanuki, otherwise known as raccoon dogs, or like we watched in the subbed version, just raccoons, as their home in the Tama Hills on the outskirts of Tokyo 
and their sources of food are threatened by the ongoing suburban development project. Consistent with Japanese folklore surrounding Tanuki, a very prominent part of the Tanuki's <laughs> body, which we're just bursting at the seams <laughs> ready to talk about, garnered a lot of attention from Western viewers and in the English dubs, which have since been released. Much like many of Studio Ghibli's other works, Pompoko explores the relationship between humans and nature and has heavy themes of environmentalism, which are depicted through urbanization and the deforestation and displacement of the Tanuki from their homes. Despite being released in 1994, the story feels just as topical today. So this is our first time exploring a fandom. I guess we do know about the fandom as a whole, but exploring specifically a topic that neither of us knows anything about. So I've seen two Studio Ghibli movies before this one. I saw, of course, Spirited Away, which I think is probably the most well-known one. One uh, of one of one sure. of the most. I think well-known. My Neighbor Totoro is actually the the most watched out of any Studio oh, okay. Ghibli movie, but I believe someone can correct me if i'm wrong uh but i believe spirited away is the second most okay i just know that it was i think it won the academy award which is how it got my attention i was like i usually like to watch whatever wins the academy awards if i haven't heard of it before um and the other one i can't remember the name you were you reminded me of it uh, nausicaa valley of the wind yes nausicaa valley of the wind which to be totally honest with everyone i completely fell asleep for about halfway through it was very late it was a poor decision, but I remember enjoying what I did see of it. But that's about all I know, knew coming into this about um, Studio Ghibli. And so I really expected this movie to follow that same tone, which is more adult animation, um, very quiet, not cute, you know, kind of kind of in the vein of like magical Akira or, you know, or fairy-like ghost in the shell. That's kind of how I perceived all of Studio Ghibli movies. Yeah, for me, I've seen... Um, I wasn't actually sure how many I'd seen, first off. I knew I'd seen a handful, but I did a lot of background research after watching the movie, and I found a list of all 22 of the films and just went through and, like, checked off what I'd seen. And not counting Pompoko, I've seen eight of the 22 films by the studio. However, the majority of the ones that I've seen are on the more lighthearted end of the spectrum mm. and more overtly children uh, geared. Mm-hmm. So My Neighbor Totoro is the first one I've ever watched and the one I know the best. But I've also seen like Ponyo, Arietti. Uh, I've also seen like Howl's Moving Castle, which is probably one of the more darker in tone that I've watched. But since it's like in the minority, my perception going into this was more in that vein of, like, fun, ethereal, whimsical, child-friendly, um, you know, still with a story to tell, there are themes that run throughout a lot of Ghibli movies, but not as heavy. Right. I think, yeah, I, I, I think that's why the first, the very first scene, when they're talking about there's a war, we are at war, the Tanuki are at war, or the raccoons are at war, I was like, okay, we're getting into it. It's already very serious. You know, war is a serious topic. And then they proceed to show us, like, the cutest, darndest little war I've ever seen. All these raccoons beating each other to death, but they've got, like, smiley faces. It's kind of Looney Tunes-esque. You know, it's they're bashing each other over the head with, like, wooden bats, but they're okay. You know, nobody's bleeding. Nobody's dying. It's 
And the voiceover was kind of weird. It's like, you know, many raccoons died, but they're all kind of like, ah, ee, ooh. <laughs> it was like, so immediately I, I, I saw that the tone of this movie was going to be different. That it's something serious, but the animation and the voiceover, not the voiceover, but the actual, you know, acting voices didn't really match up with how serious the tone was going to be. And I had the same observation, but from the reverse perspective. Right. <laughs> where I was like, ah, this animation fits with what I know, but war? <laughs> what? It seems huh? a bit much. <laughs> like, many deaths. Oh. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it, so it, it, had, it kept me on my toes, like, minute one. It really kept me on my toes minute one. And, and the story progresses, and these poor tanuki, you know, they're... The urbanization of Tokyo is taking over their hills, and it's these beautiful hills. They live in poverty, but they have enough. You know, they're they're very earnest and very um, uh, community-based uh, raccoons, and they take care of each other, but their way of life is dying, and they band together to, to survive. Um, and it's very sweet, very, very sweet. It's an endearing movie overall. It is. Um, but now we have to talk about it because it's, it, it happens at minute like 28 and you kind of don't get over it for the rest of the movie. So the Tanuki in Japanese mythology are considered to be tricksters because they have the ability to shapeshift into anything that they want. They can be inanimate objects. They can be other animals. Um, and so in mythology, they, you know, trick the humans into getting what they want and they just kind of play mind games um, and their entire body can shapeshift. But the part of their body that can shapeshift the most exquisitely are their testicles. Yeah. And it comes up a lot. Right. So you see, firstly, they're animated with testicles. They have... They have little furry, furry testicles. And it's not sexualized. There's no sexual organ. It, it kind of looks like a pouch. Yeah, not sexualized at all. Um, but because it's not sexualized at all, and it takes a little while for the shape-shifting to happen, in terms of, like, the storyline, at first I just thought it was the most bizarre artistic choice. Mm, right? Yeah. I was like, huh. Okay. And then... Yeah, I Bam. I just kind of thought, wow, the Japanese are just so much more comfortable with anatomy than we are. And I kind of, you know, chided myself for not being more advanced and being like, wow, you're really noticing these testicles, Marika. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you letting that detract from the story? <laughs> yeah, this I is, had the same, same thought. Yeah, like, be more serious. Be more adult. Like, I kept telling myself that, you know. And, and at some point, um, there's a, uh, a female tanuki who's like double breastfeeding. And I wrote in my notes, I was like, respect, you know, that's awesome. You know, there's no, there's no hiding of it. It's, you know, body parts are not sexualized. It's natural. It's normal. And I, and I, I, I was, I was on board. I was like, yes, let's do this. Yeah. And then the first scene with the elder Tanuki, who's teaching the younger raccoons how to shapeshift, has them sitting on a tatami on a mat. And he's telling them, you know, are you comfortable on this mat? Well, I must tell you, these are actually my testicles. And he he morphs the testicles back into his body and all the tanuki fall down. And he's like, see? And it ends there. And I wrote down, 
what the fuck? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> we both had the same... So we take notes when we watch or we read the geek for the week. Um, eh, I rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> but we... Yes, you did. <laughs> so we, we take notes, though, uh, for things that interest us or that we want to do follow-up research on or talking points. And we both had very similar first notes here. Yours was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Like, testicles? Why? Question mark. Like, something like that. I wrote, right? testicle mat, what the fuck? And then I wrote, oh my god, so much testicle magic. And then I wrote, so many animated testicles. And then finally I had to pause the movie at minute 32 and I wrote, how many more testicles am I going to have to see? And it was a lot. It was, it was a lot. <laughs> what? For me, the first note that I wrote down was, what the fuck? Why are there so many testicles? Is this relevant? And yeah. Yeah, it is. They are a plot device. Yeah. So the... Let's quickly run through a list of things that the testicles do. So there are testicle carpets. Yes. There are testicle bridges. Yes. There are testicle boats. Oh, yeah. The testicle boats play a significant part to the story. I mean, you have to cross the river somehow, I guess, right? Yeah. So, like, the... They are plot devices, and they move the story along, yeah. and functional, and like they are an integrated part of the story. So I couldn't just be like, get over yourself, like, ignore the testicles, like it's, it, stop being so immature, because you can't ignore the testicles. It got to the point, when I wrote the first note, because we don't read every note that we take, because you don't know, you know, what's interesting or what's going to play out. And I remember writing the note about the testicles and thinking this is a one-off and I probably won't even mention it when we do the podcast, but it got to the point where it was so integral to what was going on that I paused the movie and punched into Google, how strong are raccoon testicles? Which I got to say was a Google first for me. You know, like I just, I, I, I was like, is there something special about Raccoon testicles. And the internet immediately knew what my question was, and they brought me to Tanuki mythology. They're like, oh, you're clearly reading about Tanukis right now. So the story goes that these Tanukis um, are basically raccoons, and in mythology, yes, they use their testicles, as you said, for boats and carpets and all kinds of stuff. The reason it's so... Uh, talked about is that it was generally accepted in the old days for metal workers in Kanaz in Kanazawa, they would use the the testicles of the dead animal to wrap different kinds of metal in, and they found that it could be remain very strong no matter how far it could stretch. So this is mythology mixed with realism, mixed with just age. Um, and so there, it's nothing to laugh about, but it gets to the point in the movie where like every eight minutes, some raccoon uses their testicles for something. And I couldn't stop giggling. I, I couldn't stop giggling. I was like, you're 38, grow up, but this is funny. It's funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, like we're not trying to be insensitive and like we've now done a lot of independent research yeah. to try and understand and contextualize why it was so jarring for us. But, like, this is the common reaction that, uh, based on that research, a lot of people who are, like, more westernized have when they watch this movie. Like, we're not alone in that 
observation and shock. And sometimes it is played for laughs. I mean, the first time it's shown in the movie, he plays it for laughs to kind of trick the younger raccoons and make them tumble and fall. So it kind of became a a battle for me of should I be laughing at this because the filmmakers want me to laugh or am I laughing at this? Am I being deeply culturally unsensitive and immature? And so it was kind of this roller coaster ride surrounding testicle magic where I questioned so much more about myself than I thought I would, honestly. I really love that you used the word uh, roller coaster though, because like that was the experience I had watching the entire movie, even outside of, of you know, the, the testicles, mm-hmm. right? For me, I kept going through this wave of, like, this is fun and ethereal and endearing and heartwarming. Studio Ghibli and the animation is cute and soft. To, like, being really, really, like, struck by how sad and, like, upsetting the storyline was. And there were, like, words peppered in. And, like, choices that they made in terms of, like, the the storytelling that juxtaposed so harshly with the rest uh, of what was being portrayed that, like, every ten or so minutes it felt like I was having, like, a kind of moment where, you know, I was just yoinked out of, like, what I was watching. Absolutely. And it was like, oh, my God. like. It would happen on a dime. You would be totally fine, and then there would be a word chosen or a tonal shift that happened, and you're like, oh my god. Okay, I... Yeah, your examples are great. You listed some examples earlier for me, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's a, that sounds about right. So I, I took a list in my notes of, like, every time it really, really hit me where there was a drastic shift or a word that, like, really broke my focus... And the list I have is McDonald's, which mm-hmm. shocked me. Like, I know, like, McDonald's is a thing when Studio Ghibli movies, like, existed and invented. But, like, usually they're kind of set in the past or in, like, an, an other world. So mm-hmm. to have such a heavily branded real world yeah. thing emerged in what does still feel like a fantasy movie yeah. that could be otherworldly really, really hit a chord with me. And I was like, oh, my God. McDonald's. So this is our world. You're saying this is our world. That's how it felt, you yeah. know? Uh, the next one I wrote down was Slaughter All the Humans, which is said by one of the Tanuki warriors uh, very seriously and in earnest as a solution to the problems they're experiencing. And, and to, to the point that we were making earlier, like, this character is saying you know, we have to fight for our way of life and we have to fight. And he's saying it in this kind of cute cartoon voice, you know, and we're going to fight. And he says, we have to slaughter all the humans. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) And then the other raccoons who support him continue to chant with him in this Slaughter all the humans. (laughs) Slaughter all the humans. humans. And you're just like, (gasps) whoa. I am a human. (laughs) (laughs) And I it's am hard a because you are the villain in the story. Like, yeah. we are the villain. We are... But, like, also in the story, the humans aren't actively the villain. They're not knowingly They're the not villain. aware they just that don't this Tanuki exists. Yeah. It's ignorant, for sure, and it speaks and plays into that theme of environmentalism. Mm-hmm. But, like, they are so loathed and hated by the Tanuki yeah. that, like, slaughter the humans is a viable solution the humans don't even know, right? No. So that was a jarring one for me. The next one I have was Terrorist. Yeah. Shortly followed by Gorilla Attack. Yep. Which both, like, very 
real and heavy connotations, especially like now in 2020, mm-hmm. right? And the last one I wrote down was fake news. Now, fake news took me out of the movie so much that I paused and like scrolled back. I like rewound it because I, I thought that I had misread it. I thought that I, I, I thought, oh, I, I must have. I must have imposed my 2020 knowledge on what I'm seeing. And no, they talk about fake news. And it's, yeah, it takes you out of the movie completely. It's kind of like when you see characters in face masks now in movies that were play- being played as eccentric up until about a year ago. And now you're like, oh, that's just normal. You're yeah, like, <laughs> oh, well. Like, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, it, it fake news as a phrase, like, obviously had some connotation in the 1990s, but, like, very different, right? Like, very you, different. And it was political then, and it's political now, but it's political in a different way. Like, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it, it was it was rough. And then you kind of, after you get pulled out of these moments, you get pulled back into the Tanuki plight. So they want to make the humans aware. Uh, they don't want to make the humans aware, sorry. They want to scare off the humans. They want to scare them just enough to stop developing apartment complexes in their beautiful forest. And they come up with a plan to use powers that they haven't used in a few centuries of um, transformation and shape-shifting to kind of create illusions that would terrify the humans just enough to stop trespassing on their land. And so they do this by going into Tokyo and creating kind of like a parade. And it's a parade of everything you could possibly imagine. Dragons, ghosts acrobatic figures not everything scary i did really enjoy that sequence it's a really beautifully animated sequence and like it's a really hodgepodge of of spirits and apparitions there are some other fun studio ghibli nods in there like the the red plane from porco rosso okay if you're familiar, like, i don't think you no i don't know it no but um that's visible in the parade you see it going through the skyline so that is a really fun nod to people who are familiar with other Ghibli works. Um, there probably are also others in there that I didn't pick up on just because I haven't seen every Ghibli movie, but I saw that one and was like, ah, like that's so, yeah. Um, but it, this parade is meant to be serious. Right? It's, it's meant to be serious. And I feel like it's, if you only have to watch one part of this movie, I think that should be it because Within the sequence of the parade itself, the tonal shift is so extreme. I liked it because it showed you the viewpoint of the Tanuki. For them, the mere ability to shapeshift and turn into all of these fantastical vistas and creatures should be enough to scare the humans. But unfortunately, they don't really understand humans at all because... It does have some scary demons and ghosts, but they also have kind of cute circusy clown elements. It does kind of feel very, very magical and ethereal. And so what ends up happening is the humans are not scared. They see this and they think, oh my God, this is beautiful. This is amazing. This is enchanting. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of see the Tanuki perspective where they're like, we're going to scare the pants off of them. And in typical manner, humans are just like, this must be a trick of light. Let's just go with it because yeah, what it's a fun. What? Yeah. What a marvel. Yeah, what a marvel. Let's just enjoy this. Um, and so it was really good character building on both sides because it's the first time you actually see humans in the movie. The whole time they're kind of 
seen as this anonymous threat and they're represented by like bulldozers and cranes and, con and anonymous construction workers. And here you see the Tanuki in a city with children and families and business workers and all that kind of stuff. And you see that they're really putting all of their energy and focus into this. And the humans are kind of just dismissing it. It has another interesting point, too, or it marks something that is a bit of a turning point in the movie that was... This particular moment was not as horrific to me, but, like, the the flood way that it opened led to, like, a lot of, like, feelings that made me very uncomfortable, to be Such honest. As? Well, the first Tanuki dies. Oh, At the right. end... <laughs> Right, I forgot about that. At the end of the parade, right. after there being so much exertion, so much effort put into this parade to like scare off the humans, which doesn't work. It it really is tonally highlighted by the fact that it doesn't work, and the the first Tanuki dies from the effort of right. doing this, and that opens the floodgates to what is basically a genocide, and in a way, a self brought on kind of genocide of the Tanuki. What does it mean that that didn't even register with me at all? Because I was like, yeah, he was an older Tanuki. He wasn't going to survive that. You know, I was, <laughs> and I was so happy that his death paved the way for what is ultimately my favorite characters in this movie. The three wise Tanuki that come from a faraway village um, that this, that had succeeded in stopping human development. And so they come to train these younger Tanuki in the ways of shape-shifting. Um, yeah. So his exit kind of brought in my favorite character, so I guess it didn't register with me at all. <laughs> so at this point, you know, they're after the parade and he's died, they're all, like, very sad and humbled, but also celebratory because they're like, it worked! Right. And then when they find out it didn't work, it causes a rift, yes. and they go in a lot of different directions. They can't really agree on how to proceed. Uh and this, this rift really leads to, like, all but one of the main groups of Tanuki dying. Yeah. And, like, pretty brutally in some circumstances, there's the guerrilla attack, mm -hmm. which is basically an assault of eco-terrorism, really, um, where the Tanuki kind of, like, bomb down using their testicles. Again. And... You know, attack the humans and are killed. There's the group who tries to educate through the news media. Yeah. Uh, or the media on the news. Um, who they are and, and what it means. And they also... Part, part of that group dies. Yeah. Uh, there's the group led by one of the three elders who at this point has gone senile. Yes, that's right. And he takes all of the Tanuki that don't have shape-shifting ability... And leads them on a boat on his testicles and they sail off away in a boat and it's very heavily implied through the text that they also all died. It's basically like the end of the Lord of the Rings, you know, where you get on the boat and you're going to that land and you're not coming back, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, they're, they're sailing off and they're under the guise of this, this elder who's gone senile who's basically been like, we're going to take you to the promised land. Um, and so it's almost, it felt to me almost cult-like in that they were, like, mm. led and promised this better future, and then it's heavily, heavily implied that they all died. And it's like, oh my god, like, this is the Kool-Aid moment of... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. 
I like the Kool-Aid moment where they're, oh, well, I'm marching off to our deaths. See ya. And it just, oh, it was hard to watch and upsetting and like very in, uh, in contrast to like what I feel like a Ghibli movie should be. And that's just a personal perception that I have. But like, for me, I was just like, ah, it was gripping, but like uncomfortably gripping. That's crazy. I had the exact opposite reaction. I was just like, huh, all right. <laughs> just like, okay, they all died. Um, I guess I should have, I think the movie definitely wanted me to be more invested in their plight and feel really, really sad when they died. But it just, it just felt so disjointed. It felt like a one-sided war. You know, you never really saw the humans, you know, about three quarters of the way in, you meet some of the bad humans, but... You don't really meet their enemy. Their way of life is dying. They choose this one way to save themselves. But it just, it never, I never connected with any of the characters. And I, not for, from, from lack of trying, you know, they have, they have babies, they have families, they have an entire civilization. There's a love story thrown in there. Of course there's a love story thrown in there, you know. Um, It's, it's, it's a really nice movie, but I, the tonal shift made it, so I disassociated from it so much that I was like, is this something, like I said before, is this something I'm laughing at? Is this something I'm taking seriously? Are they destined to die? Is that the destiny that, you know, they should actually go towards like having a better life? And I understood that the humans were bad because ecologically humans are a disaster and we're destroying everything around us, around us. And, you know, we're destroying our resources and the lives of countless millions of, you know, species on this planet. But I just couldn't seem to to care. They couldn't get me to care. It just it, it was it was it was weird because usually I get into those fantasy elements quite readily, quite voluntarily. But yeah, I don't know. Just I was like, all right, they're dead. I kind of. I mean, this is gonna sound terrible, but I kind of love that you didn't care because it highlights how how different we are in yeah. in our perception. Of I thought things. you were gonna say how callous humans truly no. are. Well, <laughs> Maybe that too, but but more, I mean, like we had equal knowledge of going in, right? right. And we had very different outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And we're kind of in in many ways in many fandoms, we are foils of each other in that yes. regard, right? Yeah, we both love fandom, we both love geekdom, but with minimal exception, we have very different different fandoms and different views and different tastes right yeah absolutely so this was like a really poignant highlight of that for me but no like i think where you felt disconnected because of the tonal shifts for me it was that much more jarring Hmm. if it had been consistently sad throughout i think i still would have felt upset and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have like hit me so much i think each time yeah and and one of the things i kept wondering like especially at the end so some of the tanuki in order to survive, shapeshift into humans and take on human lives. Like, they get jobs and apartments and they just live. And one Tanuki in particular is very miserable as a human. He's kind of just like a businessman. And he sees one night as he's walking home a bunch of raccoons, a Tanuki, living on a golf course. And he, it's kind of a beautiful scene. He crawls under the fence And he runs towards them and he starts to undress and then eventually turns into a Tanuki and celebrates with them. And there's a heavy-handed breaking of the fourth wall where one of the Tanuki says, like, 
<laughs> in the cutest voice possible, like, we're all dying, you're poisoning us, you know, stop being horrible, you humans, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. The, the last moments are kind of challenging for me because it's portrayed, like, the character is happy because he's reunited with other Tanuki. Right. And meant to be, like, uplifting and, like, we're still surviving and we're... We're a community and, like, we, we've found each other and, like, it, it's framed very happily. Mm-hmm. But it's a fucking golf course. It's a, <laughs> like, they're inhaling all the pesticides. Like. So it's also really sad. I don't really think there is a happy ending for the Tanuki, right? No. Because, yeah, they've found each other, but there's, like, what, 20 Tanuki left out of what was hundreds, hundreds. if not thousands? Like, that's not happy. It, I don't think, yeah, I don't, they're happy because it kind of shows their unbreakable spirit, which is really beautiful. But I think the disconnect that happened for me there is not the movie's fault at all. I just think that in 2020, as compared to 1994, our conversation surrounding um, the environment, uh, surrounding uh, conservation has changed so much. Um, and so it, it really felt like there was an opportunity to keep going about like what their life on the golf course was and, and actually how bad it was for them to be there. But that just wasn't part of the conversation back in 1994. So I think the disconnect for me is like, I mean, you don't remember 1994 because you weren't born, right? No, <laughs> okay. no, I was not. But I do. And the number one concern in 1994 was the hole in the ozone layer. When you talked about environmentalism, that's all you talked about. And now when you talk about environmentalism, you're talking about sustainability. You're talking about pollution. You're talking about, you know, responsible agriculture. It's become a lot big, a much bigger part of who we are. And so it kind of felt just like they touched on it in the movie and then they kind of went back to their happy campfire on this golf course. So, like, the, the disconnect that I had isn't entirely the movie's fault. It is just where we are now in our in our culture. Well, I'd say we also have more of a sense of urgency now, too. Yes. Right? Like, it was, a, it was clearly a conversation in the 1990s, um, you know, obviously. But was it as urgent a conversation? No. No. No, it really wasn't. No, we were, we were just so happy Clinton was president. We didn't care. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, did, what did you pair this tea with, this geek with? What tea did you drink? So, like I said, I had a lot of options, uh, that I felt like could work. I am really happy with the one I settled on, and that was a hojicha from a company called The Tea Practitioner, a Canadian company. Okay. Uh, also black-owned, which is really cool. Nice. Uh, but I went with hojicha, it was one of my, like, shortlisted teas, because hojicha is a lot more roasted, nutty, kind of woody, right? That played into that feeling of forest and, like, tree and earth that I kind of thought I wanted uh, to connect to the tone. Hojicha is also Japanese, yeah. right? Studio Ghibli, like that, to me, makes sense. You know, have a Japanese tea. And I brewed it gong fu uh, in an in a Yixing pot. Controversial, I know, like, hojicha in a Yixing pot. Hey, all but, methods of steeping are valid. And if you want to get creative with it, you should. I love my hojicha dedicated yixing pot. Uh, it's very, very well seasoned and it gets a lot of use. So that's how I brewed it. And I felt really connected both to you know the Japanese origin, the setting, right? 
I liked having something more traditional for a steeping method. It just overall worked really well for me. I just really like how, you know, for people who don't know what an Yisheng teapot is, it's a teapot that you'll, it's a small teapot that you will dedicate to a single tea and not wash out with any soap or anything so that with each steep, the the tea will become impregnated in the actual um, uh, materials of the teapot. And so over time, in theory, Kelly, in like 20 years, you should be able to brew hot water in this tiny teapot and have it taste like hoji chow without having added any tea. That's kind mm-hmm. of the the end goal behind having an Yisheng teapot is to, you know, brew without tea in the long run. Yeah. But this is a traditional Chinese brewing method that you use a Japanese tea for. And yes, you've gotten a lot of flack, not from me. I think it's brilliant. I think it's fantastic. Um, but you've really combined, you know, two worlds together in this one, in this one brewing method, and and I applaud you for it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, for me, you know, like Marika explained, uh, a Yisheng pot really is a long term investment. Yes. But some of the teas you see more commonly used with them would be like black teas, puer, oolong. But it's not uncommon for people to have like a more heavily oxidized or roasted oolong de- dedicated pot. Mm-hmm. So that's where the hoji cha connection comes for me. I love that tea type and style of production as a whole. Um, I don't drink a lot of green tea, but I drink a lot of hoji cha. Right? <laughs> and it is roasted, right? It's yeah. not oxidized the same way that, you know, uh, an oolong would be, but... It is roasted, and so for me, like, why doesn't that work? Why why would that not work? I just think it's great because I think a lot of the times in the traditional tea world, we hold ourselves to these, you know, 300, 400, 500-year-old rules that simply, that are there for a reason and need to be explored, but I think it's really important to push the boundaries of what is, you know, acceptable to come up with something new. And hojicha for me, I know a lot of people don't even really like hojicha because it's a green tea that's been roasted. So it's not really a green tea. And it was only invented in the 1930s. I mean, it's a pretty recent development in the world of traditional teas. So it kind of gets poo-pooed a lot of the time. But I just think it's a fantastic tea. Light roast, light toast. It's winter in Japan to me. That's what you drink on a cold day with cherry blossoms through floating through your mind I don't know that's just it's a great way to do it um I went in in a similar vein but actually completely different direction than you I just steeped in a mug some genmai cha um from David's tea it's what I had on hand um I love genmai cha or genmai cha however you want to pronounce it it's just Japanese green tea with roasted rice um and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I just knew I was about to watch a Japanese movie. So I chose that tea and I didn't particularly want to use a Kyusu teapot or do anything, you know, particularly challenging. And now that I know about all the testicles in Pompoko, I think that the roasted rice in the Genmaicha is a perfect kind of representation. <laughs> representation of that. The green leaves represent the forest and the rice represents the testicle magic. So aside from it being a really easy tea to drink and an easy tea to steep, which isn't the case necessarily with a lot of Japanese green teas, I thought it was a perfect flavor pairing because it it reminded me absolutely of Japan. And then after completing the movie, I was like, oh, well, visually, I could not have chosen a better tea. (laughs) 
I I love the tea I picked. I had a lot that I had on my mind. I think everything that I was considering would have worked. Right. But this, I had the added layer of it being Japanese, which just felt like good to, to marry that. If I was to go a non-traditional tea route, though, mm-hmm. I think now having seen it, I'd pick something with persimmon. I feel like okay. that would be really fun. Why? They're just in the background a lot. Like there's oh, yeah, persimmon that's true. trees everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. really good like set dressing kind of moment, and yeah. it has like the flavor and fun that a, you know a Ghibli movie can have. Okay, so on that note, would you would you re-steep? Are you re-steeping Pompoko? I would like to rewatch the movie, I think, now that I have more historical and cultural context. Right. I think I would get something different knowing that. Uh, also, I think now that I know that it's a different tone than what I had expected, that would also shift my perception of it. Mm-hmm. So I think I would get more from a rewatch. I don't know that I'd revisit it after that rewatch. I think it's a one rewatch and okay. then kind of thing for me. Yeah. Um, Studio Ghibli as a whole, I mean, there's 22 movies. I've only seen nine, right? <laughs> so there's more to watch, and and I do plan on watching more. So Yeah, I, I kind of plan on watching more. It kind of reminded me... Oh, yeah, Studio Ghibli is amazing. Um, the animation's great. It's a lot of fun. I don't think I'm going to rewatch this movie, though. Not because I didn't like it, but just because I got what I needed from it. Um, and I want something a little bit more complex. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I just, it was good, yeah. but I, I, I couldn't even recommend it. I'd, I'd have a hard time recommending it to anybody, not because it was bad, but just because I found the tonal shifts on a dime to just be too much in the end. Yeah, I think both of us can probably agree that we found it valuable and informative and gained something for it, but yeah. I don't know if either of us truly liked it, right? It can be a good, steep, and informative and educational, and you can get something from it without, like, really loving it. Yeah, I think you'd probably be better served researching Tanuki mythology online, because the stuff that I read about the different kinds of myths and stories surrounding them were actually slightly more entertaining than the movie itself. So, yeah, kind of a mixed feeling here. It's fair. Do you want to watch more Ghibli movies in general? I think so. I think so. Um, but it 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 takes a lot for me to sit down and watch a, a, a Ghibli movie. It does. I have to be in that specific mood. I can't just turn it on. I have to really kind of want to be transported. Um, I have to focus. I mean, I don't know about you, but I still watch TV with my phone in my hand. I'm, I'm an absolute, you know smartphone user when I'm watching TV because I'm still listening but with subtitles you have it's to hard. sit and it's read we both struggled with the subtitles a little bit I think I did yeah because I had I had my baby at the same time so I couldn't like take care of her and look at the screen at the same time so I ended up rewinding a lot um so yeah I I I, I wouldn't be opposed if someone put it on let's Fair. put it that way I think a good one for you would be Ponyo because it is like very child friendly and it was released. Um, there's a really good like English version of it. Mm-hmm. So you could watch it with like your kids. And okay. I think you would like it, it's the right age range for uh, for Bird. Oh, nice. All right. Well, that's I think that's kind of sums up our Pompoko experience and what an experience it was. It was a roller coaster. If you've seen this movie and you had 
you know, a different takeaway than either of us had, or you em empathized with one of us more than the other, like be sure to follow us on Instagram. It's Geeksteep, or you can use the hashtag Geeksteep. Let us know what you thought of Pompoco. If we inspired you to watch it for the first time, <laughs> did it meet our you know, summary of it? Did you feel the same way? Was there too much testicle for you? <laughs> Let us know. We want to keep the conversation going. Happy steeping, everyone.